So turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 12 and 13. If you don't know where Zechariah is and don't want to look at the table of contents out of shame, it's to the right of the middle. If you're seeing names like Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you need to head left just a little bit, and you'll eventually find Zechariah. Zechariah is one of the so-called minor prophets because of his shorter writings. We're looking at all of chapters 12 and 13 this morning, but I'll just be reading a few selections in the interest of time, uh, beginning in chapter 12, verse 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. In chapter 13, verse 1, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And in the very end of chapter 13, verse 9, they will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know if you saw online a few months back, there was the true story posted by a former bridesmaid of a bride-to-be, whose expectation of her bridesmaid she had sent out in an email, it was a little out of control. She had very, very specific expectations and demands of the bridesmaids in her wedding, down to the length and style of their hair, down to the weight that they needed to be by the wedding day, down to the amount they were to spend in the thousands on her bridesmaid gift for her. Needless to say, it didn't go over very well. And I think the the reason that that story resonated with so many people as the story kind of went viral for a few weeks was that we've all been in a situation where we felt like somebody's expectations of us were unreasonable. It was more than we could bear. It was more than we could ever hope to live up to. Maybe it was a job uh, listing that demanded 10 years experience for an an entry-level position. Or maybe it was an employer who asked too much of us, a teacher who put three tests on the same day. Sometimes people's requirements of us are just too much. And I fear that approaching the Lord can feel the same way. That God wants you to have a right heart attitude. God wants you to live a certain way. God wants you to believe certain things. God wants you to give a certain amount. God wants you to do this and do that and be that. Is it any wonder that people get frustrated with a religion that presents itself that way? 
God sounds like a demanding perfectionist who expects us to measure up to an impossible, unreasonable standard. And sure, He forgives us, He he shows grace, but what then do we do with all those expectations? Was God just wasting His breath in listing out all these requirements that He knew we could never do? Zechariah is prophesying to God's people in a very difficult time in their history. Having returned from 70 years in exile where they were being punished for their disobedience and sin, they are weakened, they are impoverished, they're vulnerable, they're tired, and their immediate goals are just to rebuild the city. But God wants them to repent of their sin that put them in that situation to begin with. God wants them to reject and leave behind their old way of life and to once again open His Word and see the way He calls them to live. God wants them to be a light for the nations and to stand out and to be brave and bold, though they are the smallest and weakest of nations. Is it too much for God to ask this of His people? But what we see in these chapters of Zechariah is that though God asks a lot of us, He provides everything He requires. And as we carry this message through the story of salvation to today, we see that everything God requires of His people today, He graciously provides for them through Jesus Christ. Whatever God asks of you, He gives you so that you will not arrive to Him empty-handed. The first thing that we'll look at is that God provides repentance. He provides repentance. The book of Zechariah began with a call to repentance in chapter 1 verse 2 return to me says the lord of hosts and i will return to you he was calling his people to leave behind everything else they'd chased after and to come back to him to repent but the problem time and again is that the people have not returned to the lord they've set their hearts on other things they have followed as we saw last week they've followed after other shepherds who've led them astray If we are to expect any blessing, any good thing from God, we have to turn away from the idols in our hearts. We have to repent. But we do not. And they did not. And so it would seem we are stuck. And that is an unacceptable outcome for a loving God. If His people need to repent and will not repent, and God wants them to repent, guess whose will is going to have its way? When the people need to repent, God provides repentance. In chapter 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Don't misunderstand what's happening here. Some of you probably even saw it this morning. When my kids are misbehaving towards one another, I can stop them, grab their shoulders, and force them to apologize. Say you're sorry to your sister. I'm sorry. For what? For hitting you. You Those are not sincere apologies. And we know that. It's it's about teaching us the, the right behavior, the right practice. I can threaten my kids. I can threaten to withhold screen time or whatever good thing they want until they mutter the most insincere apology you've ever heard. But that's not what God is doing here. He's not just forcing His people to repent. God is speaking of a change of heart. God doesn't just make us say we're sorry for our bad choices. He actually 
changes our hearts so that we really do feel sorry for how we've disobeyed Him. Something big happens and it shifts the ground that we stand on. Our heart begins to beg for mercy from God in sincerity. And then look at the rest of verse 10. After saying that he's going to pour out this spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, he says he's going to do this, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This isn't Zechariah saying, they will look on me. This is the Lord. The Lord saying, they will look on me, the one they've pierced. That word pierced means to be stabbed, to be run through, to have your flesh broken open. God is saying, my people will pierce me. They will break my flesh. And that will lead them to repentance. Not only have they rejected their God, but they're going to reject Him so fully and so violently, it will be as if they've struck Him down with a sword. Christians, we know how this played out in a way that Zechariah and the people of his day could not imagine, that God Himself would take on human flesh that was able to be pierced, that was able to be broken. And He then allowed His people to pierce Him through with nails and with a sword. In John chapter 19, the apostle recognizes this at the crucifixion. In describing the crucifixion, he goes on to say, these things took place in order that the scripture of Zechariah might be fulfilled. They will look on him whom they have pierced. But then, to some who look on the God that they have pierced, they will be given a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Recognizing the seriousness of their offense, they repent. God leads us. One of the ways that He leads us to sorrow and to repentance is by showing us how Jesus was punished for our sins, that He took our place. But note that repentance is a gift of God. It is something that God provides. It means that His Spirit is at work by grace to move their hearts. That's why, uh, just a little explanation of our approach to preaching. And our approach to ministry as a whole is not that I'm going to try to work you up into such an emotional fervor. I'm going to tell you the saddest stories I can tell. I'm going to get you so uncomfortable that your heart and your emotions will be moved towards a form of sorrow and repentance. Because it's not me that makes you repent. Repentance is something that God gives you. We see this in Acts chapter 11. Having heard about how God had changed the hearts of the Gentiles, whereas before only, only Jewish believers had, had been Christians, God in, in Acts chapter 10 and 11 spreads it into the other nations. And Peter comes back and tells the story of this. And after he tells the story, the other Christians are rejoicing and they say in Acts chapter 11, they glorify God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Not, good job, Peter, you told such a convincing explanation of the gospel that you persuaded them to repent. Not, great job, Peter, you, you moved them so emotionally that they felt bad for their sins and they repented. No, God gave them repentance. God moved their heart. This needs to affect us in several ways, and one of those ways is thankfulness for how we have been granted repentance. If you have turned to Christ and repented of your sins, that was a gift of God. That wasn't you being smarter than everyone else. 
It wasn't you figuring it out. It wasn't you being a better person or a more spiritually sensitive person. That was God taking someone who was dead in their sin and hardened to the Word of God and giving you something that no one else could give you. He gave you repentance. This also needs to affect the way we treat one another and the way we treat those outside the church. Listen to how Paul describes the way that ministry should be done in the midst of conflict, in the midst of disagreement, in the midst of speaking to people who are so clearly wrong. How does Paul tell Timothy to speak to such people? In 2 Timothy 2, he says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Hang on there. Keep that slide up. This is what it is to be like when we disagree with people. When people are preaching a false understanding of things, when people are just flat out wrong, we approach them patiently. We approach them with gentleness. Why? Because of what the rest of the verse says. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. We are patient with one another and with those who do not yet have the gospel, with those who are completely wrong. We are patient. We are gentle. Because it is up to God to grant them repentance. And until He does so, we exhibit the graciousness and the patience and the kindness of God. So the first thing we see that He provides is He provides repentance. The next thing we see is, uh, I want you to imagine if you had committed a, a heinous crime and in appearing before the judge, your argument and your defense was, but I'm really sorry. I repent. I feel really bad about what I did. That million dollars that I stole and that is still in my bank account. I feel really bad about that. Is that likely to end in a declaration of innocence for you? Is the judge likely to hear that and be like, oh, he feels bad, okay. No, your guilt remains. Even after you've repented, your guilt remains. So after the Lord provides repentance for His people, and chapter 12 goes on to describe all the groups of people grieving over their sin as God has poured out this spirit of repentance, feeling sorry isn't enough. That's why in our order of worship this morning, First, we have a confession of sin and then an assurance of pardon. We don't just leave it hanging where we say how sorry we feel for our sins. We need the Lord's word assuring us that he has given us cleanness. The Lord, after giving repentance, gives cleanness. In Zechariah 13, verse 1, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. God promises to take all the sin, all the uncleanness, all the guilt, and wash it away. He's going to open up a fountain, a powerful stream of running water that never stops, enough to wash clean. You ever tried to wash yourself clean with a handful of water? Doesn't work, does it? Or you ever visit a hotel where the, the, the water pressure is just not there? You're not getting clean. And God says, I'm going to open up a fountain. I'm going to turn on a fire hose to wash away your sin. And in 1 John chapter 1, we see 
how this is fulfilled. The apostle says, if we walk in the light, as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. What God promised His people through Zechariah, He gave them in Jesus. Just as we sang about this morning, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The death of Jesus, His blood, is the fountain that cleanses us from our sin and our uncleanness. When Jesus died, He took your punishment, and He gave you in exchange His perfect life. So in the eyes of God, you can be treated as if you had never sinned. As if you are perfectly righteous, perfectly holy in the eyes of God. But it doesn't end there. Not in Zechariah's day and not for us today. Because it's not enough for God to count us as free and as guilty, free of guilt and sin. He wants to actually make us free of sin. We see in chapter 13, verse 2, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, so that they shall be remembered no more. And I also will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. God is not just going to forgive His people's sins. He's going to remove their sins. The idols the prophets who serve the idols. We have our idols today, brothers and sisters. We have things that we run to and look to because they promise us comfort or security. Things that we sacrifice for because they promise us a better life. Things we imitate because they tempt us with belonging and acceptance. Yes, we have idols today that we worship and serve. We have false prophets People who urge us to buy this, believe that, commit to this, trust that. Peddlers of false hopes, false futures, false role models. These are the false prophets of our day, serving the idols of our day. Whether those idols are political parties, uh, material things, addictions, whatever it is that we run to for comfort. There are prophets that will call us to serve them. And God says, I'm going to cut those idols off from my people. I will remove them from your hearts. Last week we saw in chapters 10 and 11 how God was angry against the bad shepherds that had misled God's people. And then in chapter 13, we see almost comically how that plays out. How these false prophets, anyone who tries to sell a false hope to lead us to worship something else, to devote, our, devote ourselves fully, to invest our lives in something else, uh, God is going to remove them, to strike them down, and they're going to be punished for misleading God's people. And, and it's almost comical. They, they try to gaslight people and be like, no, 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 me, I was never, I never said that. That was never me. I didn't do that. I didn't say any of that. It's a picture of the thorough cleansing of, of God's people. How He comes in and just cleans house. He doesn't just forgive our sin. He wants to remove it. Not just in theory, but in actuality. The biblical word for this, the theological term, is sanctification. To make holy. It's the process where God's Holy Spirit changes and transforms us more and more day by day to be like Jesus in how we live. But note who is at work in that process. Sanctification isn't something that you do by yourself. I work hard. I follow the rules. I do this. And, and God looks on, hoping you get it right. Rooting for you. No, that's not sanctification. 
but it's also not the other extreme, which is God just poof, zap, changes us, and we sit back and wait for Him to fix us. No, sanctification is a process where God works in us and we cooperate with Him. The the picture that I have as I think about it is um, my kids who are Lego experts now, uh, when they were much younger and just getting into Legos, those, those things can be hard to put together, especially some of the smaller pieces to get them to snap in just right and to get them to line up where they need to go. But my, my kids really wanted to do it. And so I can't, can't even imagine how many times I'd be sitting there with one of my kids next to me or on my lap and, and we're following the instructions together and they're putting the piece on and daddy's much stronger fingers are helping push the pieces in place and getting everything lined up right where it needs to be. Who's putting that set together? Is it me? Yeah. Is it them? Yeah. Who's doing the work? We're doing it together. They could not do it without the strength I provide and the direction that I give. And that's what we see here in Zechariah 13, beginning in verse 2. God says, I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. Okay, God's going to remove them from the land. And if anyone again prophesies... His father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. False prophecy was a death sentence in Israel, by the way, just for the sake of context. So look at what happened in those two verses. God says, I'm going to remove the prophets from the land. And then in the next verse, how is he removing the prophets from the land? He's doing it through his people. When they hear a false prophet, they're going to say, Shut up. Stop prophesying. You may not speak that way because that is falseness. So who's doing it? Who's removing the false prophets? God or His people? It's together. God works through our working. He provides us with cleanness and we act on that promise. I've heard it said that grace does not eliminate working. Grace enables working. As in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says to the Christian, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You, Christian, work, 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 work out your salvation. Why? For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Christian, you can do this. You have the strength to do this because God is in you, pushing the pieces together and making sure they line up where they need to go. God is working in you. He provides repentance. He provides cleanness. There's one more thing Zechariah shows us that the Lord provides, and that is strength. Sorry for their sins and made clean. God gives them strength. Chapter 12 begins by describing how this tiny nation of people, smaller, poorer, weaker than every nation around it, with a history of being victimized and trampled on, they will be victorious over every power against them. Every army that attacks, every nation that opposes, they will be swept away and God's people will stand strong. And they will do so because God provides strength. Chapter 12, verse 8. The Lord says on that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. David who slayed, slew, It's past tense of slay. David who killed Goliath and struck down armies of the enemies of God's people. 
David, the warrior king that ruled over the mightiest kingdom in Israel's history. God says, the feeblest among my people, the weakest, smallest person will be like David. Not because they're going to go through some rocky-like montage where they work out and get strong and and learn how to use a sword and a bow and arrow and, and they suddenly become stronger. No. As he said earlier in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God makes all his children strong and able to serve him. Not just some, not just the all-stars, not just the ones who've been around a long time, not just the ones who study and understand doctrine. He makes all his children strong and able to serve. Before making such a great promise of strength to the people, God introduces himself in this way in chapter 12, verse 1. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Do not doubt what God can do. He made the heavens and the earth. He made you and all your weaknesses and faults and problems, and he knows them. And He knows the things that He will accomplish through you. Therefore, you know that whatever you accomplish will not come from you, but from God at work through you. I'm reminded of Moses, who at 80 years old, having failed miserably in his own attempts to rescue the Israelites from Egypt, had been living in the desert for 40 years as a shepherd, and probably was convinced that's how his life would play out. And then the Lord appeared to him and called him and said, I am sending you to Pharaoh to be my voice. And Moses said, sign me up, I'm in, right? No. Moses said, you got the wrong guy, Lord. I, I, no. Sorry. Apparently you don't know me. And God said, no, I, I, I know you. And Moses again and again said, no, God, You don't understand. I'm the wrong man for the job. And then in Exodus chapter 4, verse 10, Moses says to the Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and tongue. In other words, God, I, I can't even put the words together to do what you're asking me to do. And then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go. And I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Christian, you are not Moses. You are not David. But you have, amazingly, the same spirit of the same God who enables you to do anything. Ephesians chapter 1. Listen to this. God prays for you. Uh, Paul prays for the church that you would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might. That He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Do you see what that says? That the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and placed Him in authority over all things is at work in you for you. The feeblest among them shall be like David. 
even when we don't feel strong. We can be confident because it is not our strength that wins. It is God's strength in us that does what He calls us to do. The movie Shrek that came out years ago. If you haven't seen it, it's, it's a great movie. It's not just for kids. But one of the reasons Shrek was so popular is it overturned all the fairy tale mythology. It took all the, the stereotypes of fairy tales and just flipped them on their heads. You know, the lead character, the knight in shining armor, is a, is a big green ogre. You know, and he, he, he rescues the princess. But, but that's where another one of the tropes is overturned. Because we're used to seeing the princess needs to be rescued. And that's, that's all she does in the story, right? Sleeping Beauty goes to sleep. She has like eight lines of dialogue in the whole movie. You know, she's, her role in, in the movie is to be rescued. Snow White, waiting to be rescued. You know, and that's what they're picking on in Shrek because after Princess Fiona is rescued and carried away from the, the dragon, they're taken into a mystical forest and they're suddenly attacked by bandits. And we expect, because we're, we know fairy tales, we expect that the, the, the big, strong ogre is going to be the one to defend the princess. But no. We then see Fiona knows Kung Fu. It's, it's a great movie, I promise you. <laughs> and the princess goes around and kicks everybody's behind. She just knocks out this band of, of robbers. And Shrek is just... You know, and in the audience, the first time seeing this, you're just like, wait a minute. And I love that because there are no damsels in distress in the kingdom of God. If you have believed a gospel that has your role as simply sitting around waiting for God to save you and then you do nothing, then you have missed God's purposes for you. He saves you so that you can then be made strong and be brought into battle. You are all, all of you, without exception, everyone hearing my voice that is a child of God in this room, you are empowered by the Spirit of God. And you are called to fight the mightiest battles. In John 17, as Jesus is praying, not just for His disciples, but for those that would hear their message for the church today. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. How many of us, our picture of how God is going to save us and make us holy is He's going to take us out of the world. He's going to remove us from difficulty and struggle. But no, Jesus doesn't pray that we'll be taken away from the world. He says, he says as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Having saved us, having sanctified us, He sends us because He strengthens us. He strengthens us to fight battles against sin and disobedience in yourself, yes, but also battles for your friends and for your family and for your neighbors that they would know Christ and be made perfect in Him. The parent who sits at home with a disobedient child and seeks to teach them the Word of God and the doctrines of the faith and in small ways teaches them to obey is fighting a battle for that soul calls us to fight battles for the weak and the needy and the excluded and the, and the oppressed in the world, battles for those enslaved to sin, those deceived, those misled. You are all of you, each and every one, strengthened by the same Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead. 
and made able and powerful to fight those battles. The end of chapter 13 reveals the end game of what God is doing here. It describes the striking of the shepherd and the scattering of the sheep, which is fulfilled in Christ. And though many of them will not follow him again, they will reject him. One third of the sheep will experience something different. He describes in verse 9, he says, I will put this third into the fire and I will refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. God sends his people through refining, through testing, because he knows how it's going to end. He knows everything they need to endure and come through. He gives them. He provides for them what they need. And what is the point of all that? Why is he doing it? What is God after? The end of verse 9 says, They will call upon my name and I will answer them. They will say, They are my people. I will say, They are my people. And they will say, The Lord is my God. They need, we need to go through this process of testing and being refined so that we can learn to look to the Lord as the one who provides what we need. Why does God ask so much of us? Why does He make us feel weak? It is to draw us closer to Him so that we will confess, the Lord is my God. And He takes care of His people. He needs us to see not only our weakness and our need, but His goodness and His might. He needs us to see our need and His provision, our lack and His grace. As we'll sing in a few minutes with the Lord's Supper, we need to see that the Lord will provide. That's the message not only of Zechariah 12 and 13, that's also the message of the Lord's Supper that we're about to celebrate here this morning. So pray with me as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper.